You're listening to the Aramco 2022 F1 Car Reveal Series. The race is on, and Williams pulled a Red Bull by launching a 2022 show car, but it proved only to be a temporary delay, as at nearby Silverstone, the genuine article was shaken down by Nicholas Latifi and Alex Albon. So does the car promise a step forward for Williams, and why didn't it just reveal the actual car in the first place? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and more are Mark Hughes and Gary Anderson. Well, Mark, it was a bit of a roller coaster of a launch this one, with the disappointment of a show car followed by confirmation the real one would be running at Silverstone. So we only had to wait at least a few hours to see it. Yeah, it was a bit like a magical mystery tour, especially when the um, the car was delayed and in, in its running as well. So uh, yeah, it um, had a few twists and turns the day, but we got there in the end. Yeah, it seems to have been all about the marketing in that although the shakedown car did have the livery on it, they wanted to make sure everything on the branding was spot on. So they took their time with the show car and were able to do the images with it. I guess that's just the commercial realities of wanting to ensure the car looks right, which is understandable, but not of much use to us. But the images from shakedown, there weren't many of them, but that gave us some more to, to go on. So Gary, what was your initial impression of this car when you finally did see a few images? Well, the initial thing was obviously a bit of a bit of confusion because of what they released uh, for the livery, um, and then again, as you say, the uh, the fact that we saw we heard that we were going to run at Silverstone, which is a bit of a surprise because abs- I don't live far from Silverstone. It was absolutely lashing it down today. So, as I say, I hope they had wet tires there for sure. But um, well, summing up, basically from the from the uh, beginning, I, I'm a bit disappointed. You know, we've we've we can only base our thoughts on what we see from from the cars as the, as they get released, and our own sort of vision on, or my own vision on what I would like to see as a as a package and what you create, because that's what's that's what's all about. It's about the vision you have for the whole package of the car. And um, through this, I'm not quite seeing that that sort of package. Um, yeah, it's neat and tidy. Um, you know, we we always start at the front of the car, so we might as well just start there. The, you know, the front wing itself is fine, but it's very heavily loaded in the inboard part of the wing. The inboard part of the wing is the flow that the underfloor is going to see, the leading edge of the underfloor is going to see. So why would you want to sort of beat the living daylights out of the airflow that's coming through there um, before it gets to the to the underfloor? I don't quite understand that logic at all because... You know, being kind to that airflow and, and getting as much through there underneath the nose, up the nose, under surface of the nose, off that front wing, being as kind to it as possible means it'll carry more speed and more speed on the inlet of the of the diffuser, of the underfloor, sorry, means that the diffuser can um, accelerate that airflow underneath the car. And it's much, much better to start with, with higher speed airflow at the leading edge and allow the diffuser to expand that airflow to a certain level. Um, you'll get much more downforce out of it because, you know, if you slow the airflow down before it gets to that leading edge, the diffuser can still only do the same amount of work on it. Um, so basically the downforce created by the underfloor is is nowhere near as much as it potentially could be. So, you know, starting there, it's uh, the front wing design to me is a bit a bit confusing. Um, not in the fact, you know, they've got the leading edge slat, they've got the slot gap right across the front element, which is, you know, positive to me. That's where Alpha Tori don't have that. Um the nose design itself is much more, I suppose, curved on the top surface, allowing that airflow to slip over the top of the nose and get down in between the down the sides of the chassis, in between the wheels and the and the sides of the chassis. Um, so 
there's there's good things in there, um, but there's also things that I think, hang on, I don't understand that. It's just just doesn't sort of. It's not a whole package. Yeah, interesting to see how that car evolves. Obviously, it'll run in testing next week. Mark, what did you make of it? The um, just in terms of the visuals, the striking thing about it was the um, the side pod shape. So you got these big um, radiator inlets at the front, um, and then it as soon as it gets past those, it just sort of the bodywork just sort of disappears, and it's um, it's strikingly. Um, compact on the lower regions and it, it's got a quite a wide um engine cover inlet and, and quite quite looks like there's some cooling going on higher up there as well but the lower section of the bodywork and where it's paired away at the back around the suspension is um very unusual um, even even among the cars that we've seen so far so yeah it's uh they've definitely gone their own way whether as um Gary's hinting that's the right way, or whether it's a cul-de-sac, I don't know. But it's um, it's a you know the fifth car we've seen, um, and well, yeah, it's a fifth car, isn't it? If we don't include the Red Bull, um, and they're all you, you couldn't mistake one of them for for the other. They're, they're all very very different. So yeah, um, that, that's it's it's good to see that that at least has uh, continued. Yeah, you know they are all very individual, but. The thing about it is, you know, if you take the Williams, for example, and the short side pods, and as I say, it's, it's more of a housing for the radiator than anything else. Um, the inlet itself's a lot bigger than the rest of the cars we've seen. So it's it's one of those sort of things. Once you once you take air into the radiator inlet, you can't do much else with it because, it's as I say, it's, it loses all its energy going through the radiator. So what happens there is basically it cools the car. But you need to make sure you're getting the flow through the side pod and the undercut of the side pod um, and over the floor. Now, if you look at uh, the Alpha Tori, it's very respectable at sort of doing both. You know, it has a decent undercut. It has a good flow over the top of the side pod, but it all has a, a finish. It all gets to somewhere. If you look at the Williams, from my point of view, I don't know how you make airflow stay attached to the bodywork as abruptly as that surface that goes from the radiator, the sort of biggest cross section where the radiators are housed inside, down into that uh, into that cook ball area. I don't know how you can keep the airflow attached there. You know, the air is being sucked through that area for sure, and by making the cook ball as big as possible means that you're pulling more airflow that would be potentially displaced by the rear tire around the outside of the rear tire. So you're pulling more of that flow on the inside, but that's all taking energy. It's all taking you know, workload, which is drag, to actually create that. So sometimes you have to be a bit more sympathetic, I think, to the flow and uh, and make sure the flow stays attached. And also, when the car is in yaw, you know, the cars go around a corner at, you know, three or four degrees angle to the to the, uh, the sort of straight ahead, I suppose you might call it. Um, and the inside of the car, that increases the angle of the Coke bottle. It's very easy for that to stall and separate because the flow just can't stay attached. So if it's struggling straight ahead to stay attached to that bodywork, it really will struggle on the inside of the car in the middle of a corner. Um, so, you know, as I say, it's, it's a, it all looks a little bit illogical to me. It doesn't look as though it's connected up, I suppose, from front to back. You're talking about that aspect and the risk of airflow separation does just sort of trigger in the back of my mind the fact that last year we know they had a car that was quite wind-sensitive, a little bit, prone to little stalls when in your and that kind of thing 
although it's a completely different car, do you think, Mark, there's a danger that perhaps some of the limitations that led to last year's car, that sort of underlying science is still there and they that this might be a, a, a an indicator that if they do have the, the problems Gary suspects they might with that, that they're still doing the same thing, if you see what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it could be. We can't really judge that until we start seeing the, the performance patterns, but um, it would be disappointing if that's the case because they were with what was essentially the the geometry of the 2019 car, which was a pretty disastrous car. They were, they were making steady progress year on year. Um, and so you would hope that given the chance of a, a clean sheet of paper, they, they, they would have come up with something that um, improved significantly on, on, on that because it doesn't have that limitation there anymore of the, that original car. But yeah, could, could well be, you know, when, when I think we both, uh, we interviewed um, FX Mason end of last year and he, the impression he gave was he was very much focused on five years down the line and upgrading the team and that the sort of day-to-day creating of cars was a somewhat lesser concern for some other people. that, And he was like looking to put the bigger picture in place. So if if that's the case, it's, um, you know, it, it makes you wonder about what, what their prospects are for the next you know, two, three seasons. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not expert enough to look at a car and the way that Gary can and, and question what they've done. So um, I'm just looking at the, 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 the trends of the team and what what's what seems to be going on in, within there. But, um, yeah, I, it's it's not clear. It's not clear where Williams is heading at this early stage. If can I just add something there? If that's FX's vision, I suppose, looking at the team for five years' time, he won't be there in five years' time. It's you know, we all hear this sort of thing where where people, you know, say, Oh, we need we need X time to get there. This this needs to be shown positive results. Williams need to be shown positive results. Um in well, in this year, to be honest, they have to show that they've they've made a move in the right direction or at least stabilise themselves, because they had some good results last year, but they need to stabilise themselves in that in that position where they can you know, get into Q2 quite regularly, and potentially with both cars. That's that's a good step, but then you have to go forward from there, and you have to go forward from there year on year. You, nobody will invest in this for, for five years with that big promise. I've, I've been there, I've, you know, I've seen all that. It doesn't work. You have to get results quickly. Um, so at the end of the day, look, there's nothing wrong with what we're seeing. It's just a bit different, and it will be. Uh, it will be. We will need to see it run to see if there is any inherent problems with it, because everything works to a certain level, and we have no idea what the others work, what level the others work to. But I, I can't believe. I believe in, in you know, the people at AlphaTauri. I think they do a good job. I think they've got a reasonable understanding of how to make a car go quick. They showed that last year. They were able to qualify quite well. Um, Aston Martin, you know, they had a bad year last year, but even still, they weren't that bad. And the year before, they were very, very good. So there's a there's a good infrastructure there. Last year was disturbed was disrupted by the fact that they sort of copied the Mercedes from from 2020, and their new regulations for 2021 didn't suit that. So they had a year off as such. Um, the McLaren, we've seen what we saw there. So you know, they're all positive, solid cars with positive, uh, solid 
direction within them. And, you know, I'm not quite seeing that here. I just don't quite buy into the fact that that sort of philosophy that the, the Williams have adopted is a complete package. And, and it's all about the complete package, and even more so going into 2022. You know, the 2021, if you had, you know, a mega barge board package, you could you could generate lots of downforce from the underfloor because the, the, the barge board package worked really well. There isn't those little novelties within the 2022 regulations. There is no one, you know, golden bullet, I suppose you might call it. There is nothing that's going to really step out and say, right, okay, here we go. I've got this right, so I'm looking pretty good. Like a double diffuser wasn't uh, whenever it came in. That was, a, that was you know, that was the, the big ticket. Um, there isn't one of those left. And so you have to do all the detail, all the small stuff correctly. And as I say, my problem is I'm not seeing that here. And the other thing they have to be wary of, of course, is they don't have George Russell in the car this year to produce some of those magic qualifying laps. Obviously, a driver can't outperform a car, that phrase is often used, but they can get the absolute maximum out of it in qualifying while others don't. And that's what gets you up the grid. I don't think you can really call the Williams a Q3 car last year as it was on a few occasions. It was just because Russell did the job. So yeah, they're going to need a strong package for Latifi and Albon to make the most of. You're listening to the Aramco 2022 F1 Car Reveal Series. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance, and drive ongoing human-led progress. Aramco, powered by How. Gary, one of the talking points so far has been the mechanical platform suspension-wise. At a glance, this one looks relatively conventional, push rod at the front, pull rod at the rear, so standard, if you like. Yeah, nothing too far off the beaten track. And, you know, with that sort of stuff, to be honest, that's a good thing. Um, the, one of the things about suspension is there's, there's you can't really make the car go faster with it, but what you can do is destroy the tyres a lot quicker. So suspension geometry, um, damping, all that sort of stuff is relative to giving the tyre a better, bit of a better time. So that it lasts longer for you. So I don't see anything. I mean, we don't see the detail of the suspension. So it's 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 all a bit hidden still. Um, the functionality of the suspension, the geometry that I'm seeing on the wishbones and stuff like that, um, is all pretty good. So I think they should be reasonably good on tires as such. Um, but it's just the you know the, the still the end result is the amount of load you put on those tires through the aerodynamics. That's still the dominating factor. So downforce load on the tires is the thing that makes the car go faster. Reasonable suspension geometry, damping, ratio, uh, rocker ratios, all that sort of stuff is the thing that makes the tire last longer. Um, one without the other is a waste of time. So at the end of the day, you need to make sure you get both. You know, we saw, if we go way back with Mercedes, about 2013 or 2012, 2013, they had a quick car, but the tires didn't last. And that's the same, same deal as I'm talking about here. You know, 20, 2014, they got the power unit above everybody else, I suppose you might call it. But then they also understood they needed to make the tyres last. And um, they had the downforce, they had the engine, and they had the, the, the suspension that sort of made tyres work as well, if not better, than the other teams. And that's all it, all it takes. You know, on a, on a Sunday afternoon, there's 10 teams, 20 cars out there. It doesn't matter whether you're God's gift to what you've got you just got to be better than the rest. As long as you're better than the rest, that's all that matters. And um, 
For Williams, you know that you can half that. There's 10, 10 cars, potentially five teams that Williams have got to compete with to take a step forward. So that's that's where they've got to stand at. They've got to get all that stuff right. Sunday's when the points are rewarded. Um, so I think as far as Sunday's concerned, they might have a better car than they had uh, last year. But I think as far as Saturday's concerned for qualifying, they relatively they won't have the same level of performance as some of the other teams. And Mark, mention of tyres there. We haven't really talked about this a great deal in the Car Reveal series of podcasts, but they are the 18-inch wheel rims. Nicholas Latifi talked today about the visibility impact of the slightly taller wheels, and also there's that sort of winglet over the top that's all part of the of trying to keep the, the turbulence to a minimum. In terms of what people are saying, how big an impact are these tyres going to have? And actually, how much is still unknown, given that these tyres have only just started being run in shakedown conditions on uh, real 2022 cars? Yeah, I mean, the initial testing was reasonably positive. Um, guys like Carlos Science were reasonably positive that there were a, a significant improvement on the, the old tyres. Um, one of the... One of the Things I've been pondering is that with a bigger tire, it's it's going to take um, it. It will lose temperature more easily. How you would assume everything else being equal, if when it's not being loaded, and we're going to be testing in pretty cool temperatures in Barcelona. I wonder if we're going to see going to hear teams saying we can't get the tire switched on. I wonder if that's going to be a bit of a theme in the the the, the cool any any cool races. Obviously, it shouldn't be a, a problem in the first um, in Bahrain and Saudi and probably Melbourne. But yeah, I, I wonder. It, it it's because it's all all been about the last few years has it been about getting the tires up to temperature in time for a flying lap and qualifying, but then being able to keep them in that working range for a, a decent length of race stint. I'm not having to manage the pace too, not having to compromise your pace too badly to, to do that. Um, so, yeah, I, I would hope the window of these new tyres is a bit wider, but I, I would I would wonder about whether they are, what they're going to be like in uh, in the cool weather. So we'll, I guess we'll find that out in Barcelona. Yeah, I think a little bit differently, Mark. I think that you're right in saying that getting the tyre working is going to be quite tricky because... The tire and the rim itself, I think it's what fronts two and a half kilograms heavier each tire, so or each tire and wheel. And that's the mass that you're trying to heat up. That'll be quite difficult leaving the pits. And and also the, the Pirelli tire blanket temperatures this year are a bit lower than they were last year. So you're not going to be able to heat, uh, and put so much temperature in them while they're sitting in the blankets. You're going to, going to have to do it on the track. Um, but once you get the temperature into there, I think it might be a bit more consistent because you have that extra mass to hold on to that temperature. Um, and, not, and not let it drop off, go up and down so easily. So, you know, driving down the straight, you can you can come out of a corner with your front tires, you know, 130 degrees or something. And by the time you hit the end of the straight, ready for for another corner, they've gone down to about 70, 75 degrees. So it's a big, big temperature drop on those long, you know, sort of one kilometer straights. And that's the thing that sort of is is quite difficult. And that's the thing as a driver, you've got to be aware of that you aren't going to have the grip at the corner at the end of a straight that you had at the corner on, onto the straight. Um, so I think with these tyres with a higher higher mass, tyre and rim, I'm, I'm taking the two together, with a higher mass, they will hold on to the temperature a little bit better, but getting the temperature into them is going to be a pretty difficult thing. 
yeah, it's definitely going to be one of the big talking points in Barcelona. Where it's not going to be especially warm, although it'll change a little bit when we get to Bahrain. I think we've pretty much covered everything we can see on the Williams. Is there anything, Gary, we haven't talked about? Because obviously we didn't have so many images, so there's some detail we just haven't seen yet. Yeah, there's a lot of detail we really haven't seen, to be honest, around the diffuser, rear brake ducts, that rear floor area, which is critically important. But we'll have to wait. In reality, we'll have to wait with all the cars to see what they end up going onto the track with, because I'm sure everybody will change that a little bit. But looking, uh, going again with the with the, the vision thing, um, and these bigger wheels and the mud guards on the front. There's the one picture we have of the Williams going around Silverstone. It's quite a good one because you know you could sort of look at yourself sitting there across at the driver's eyes, um, thinking that you're a piece of curb that you want to sort of head for. And the driver, you know, you can't see the driver's eyes. If the driver as it always says in the back of a truck, if you can't see my mirrors, I can't see you. So it's the same thing with the curb. If if the if the curb can't see the driver's eyes, the driver's eyes can't see the curb. And uh it's going to be interesting because placing the car into a corner and getting it right on the curb to take enough curb but not too much or not too little is critical to the to lap time. So um, I'm going to be very interested down at sort of turn one and turn two at Barcelona to and through the chicane at the last part of the lap to actually see what's uh, how good and how consistent the drivers can be. Sounding a bit like Fangio in the W196 Streamliner, isn't it, Mark, with the uh, <laughs> the closed wheels, so he couldn't place it so well at the apex. Yeah, yeah, it's a big problem at Silverstone and the sweepers, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, on that note, we do have a little advanced look at the Alfa Romeo C42 as well. That's shaken down at Fiorano. We'll have a proper in-depth look at the car in a later podcast once we've seen more of it, but we can get your initial impressions of this car, Gary. You've been having a bit of a look at it. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting. I suppose the best way of putting it, it's um, it's a, a little bit different again from from the others. The front wing is again. I always take the first thing that the airflow sees because that's what the rest of the car's got to work with. Um, the front wing itself is is quite strange in the fact that it's um, it's more equally loaded, I suppose, across its span uh, between the, the nose and the, the inside of the front tyre, and then it drops down quite quickly into the end plate. The, the, the area of the end plate where it joins the, the wing, or the wing joins the end plate as such, that's quite well defined in the regulations as far as its height and radius and whatever is concerned. So that's an area where they want to stop or reduce this outwash, or turbulent outwash, I suppose you might call it. So you're not going to see big differences in any team in that, in that area. Um, but it's the other part, really, which you see. And again, if you look at the Williams around Silverstone, they had their their inboard part of the front wing is actually attached to the nose. So they have the first, I don't know, four centimetres, three centimetres, whatever it is, um, non-adjustable. And then it gets adjusted from there outwards. And on the, on the Williams, that angle of the flap is greater than the inboard end. So they're having to, it looks to me that they're having to put more downforce on at Silverstone today than the front wing was designed for. Now you could say that's because of the wet, but normally what you want is to put in the car in the wet conditions is rear downforce. You want the car to understeer a little bit. Whereas if we look at the uh, the Alfa Romeo, it looks like their part of the wing that's adjustable they've dropped it down relative to the to the inboard end. So different. You know, different concepts completely, but it looks as though um, Alfa Romeo have got a car that's either not got the rear grip or doesn't need the front grip, whereas uh, Williams have got a car that needs the front grip 
or has too much rear grip. So it'll be interesting to see whenever we see them at the same circuit in the same conditions to see what's happening. But they've they've gone for their old style of uh, Alfa Romeo. This is have gone for their old style of roll bar, uh, rollover bar, and air intake where they have a vertical rollover bar in the middle of it and a, a split intake as such. Um, again, it's quite important that area because any extra weight you add up there, it's it's very high up. So the CAG of the car goes goes a lot higher. But there's lots of little nice little tricks on it, like the turning turn up. Um, I don't know what you like to call it turning vein that's on the on the top of the floor on the side pod it's quite a quite an intricate little piece of kit there I, it, and it's it's just at the end of the the vertical turning veins that are inside the underfloor and that's i think is going to be a very important part those vertical turning veins are very very powerful in the underfloor but you've got to have something trying to pull the airflow out of them whenever you turn them quite quickly try to get the airflow out of the side of the car you need to have somebody help it and i think alfa romeo have got that um, and that should help seal the floor further back, which is where you want to seal it to make the diffuser work stronger. So very difficult to see with its camouflage colours. Um, some things on it that, you know, let's wait to Barcelona and, and really make a judgment on it because, uh, again, that's the same track. The conditions will be the same and we'll have a clue as to what the cars should run like uh, on the same track because at the moment it's all just shakedown stuff and various, various different uh, conditions. Mark, looking at that Alpha, does it tell us anything about the Ferrari? There's a push rod, but that doesn't necessarily mean Ferrari will be doing it because I think um, Alpha's doing doing their own suspension. But um, yeah, that that's I mean that's got that in common with the McLaren, although it uh, retains standard push rod front. Um, yeah, it's 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 different again, isn't it? But it's um, yeah, I. I, I I don't know what to expect of this team. I don't know whether to think that it was um, being disguised by its driver lineup last year, and that because it was, if it had found a couple of tenths, it was in some very interesting parts of the grid. Um, but it, you know, was that was was that the, the real picture, or or, or were the were the, were the drivers absolutely getting everything out of it? So. Yeah, I'm not quite sure where they're placed at the moment. So, that, yeah, that that if that car's halfway decent, we've got a known quantity in Valtteri, so we'll get a better idea. Yeah, exactly. Interesting to see how Bottas gets on there. We should just say, in terms of that rear suspension point you've made, although Alfa Romeo does use Ferrari gearbox technology, you can take the internals and build your own casing to give yourself the, uh, the suspension pickup points. So that is a choice there. But, Gary, one of the interesting things is we've seen very different approaches. We've got, for example... Aston Martin has taken the Mercedes gearbox and rear suspension wholesale. Williams has got the Mercedes gearbox, but it's done its own suspension. And some teams obviously have flexibility. They can do their own gearbox entirely. And Suspension Alpha's got that sort of halfway house with their own casing. Which would you prefer to do if you were if you were a team, and in particular if you were a team like Williams and Alpha that was taking at least some gearbox parts from a sister team? Um, I think it's it's always very difficult to adapt these parts. I think, you know, if I look at it, I think the Aston Martin solution is the best solution for a small team. I'm not saying Aston Martin are a small team anymore. I'm just saying taking that whole back-end package, you know you've got. It's a, a complete unit. It all fits together. It all quite happily joins up to your engine. The whole thing works as one. Um, 
So that is is a very good solution. I'm surprised that Williams haven't done that, I have to say, because I think Williams probably needs it more um, than Aston Martin needed. But at the end of the day, why not why not just do it anyway? Because it's you you're taking so many bits. If you if you look at the at the Williams and look at the top wishbone, you know, the, the height of the forward leg is quite a lot lower than the rearward leg. And say that that gives you what's called anti-lift. So whenever you hit the brake pedal, the car is being pulled down at the back. It's a bit different because you've got the a different solution. All that all that load that goes into the wishbone legs comes from the rear brakes being put on. On these cars, you don't have a lot of rear brakes. You're actually using the the um, MGUK to give you rear retardation. I won't call it rear brakes, but to give you rear retardation. So geometries are a bit different um, in how they work and how they actually affect the height of the car. But no matter what happens, when you come off the brake pedal, the rear of the car is always going to go back to where it wants to be for the load that's on the on the rear the rear downforce load. So it always ends up at the right ride height when you're just about to turn into the corner. And that's where you hear a lot of these drivers talking about turning in on the brakes and stuff. So it's more about when you release the rear load and how the rear of the car reacts to that release of, of load from the, the brake torque. Um, so what I'm saying really is here that if Williams have got the Mercedes rear gearbox case, the pickup points will be fairly well defined. I'm sure that Mercedes aren't going to put a big flat plate on the side of the gearbox saying here, attach your pickup point where you want it. Um, so it's it's one of those sort of situations where you, even by just having the gearbox casing, you're committed to to your suspension geometry to a certain extent. Um, so it's difficult to know where you get the compromise. As I say, Aston Martin, to me, would be the right solution. Take nothing or take everything. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I always like to keep in control of my own destiny. So I would like to design our own stuff. Uh, but that's just me being selfish. <laughs> well, there's a lot to be said for that. And it's probably not insignificant that you've picked out what is effectively the Mercedes design to uh, to say looks right. So yeah, we'll find out in the coming months who has come up with the best compromise and the best solution. Thanks as always to Gary and Mark for their insight. There's also plenty more of that to be found on therace.com and don't forget the hyphen if you're heading there. There's also lots to listen to on our other podcast covering MotoGP, Formula E and IndyCar as well as F1 history and bring back V10s and also check out our YouTube channel where there's an in-depth look at the Williams FW44 among others. So it's six down, four to go in terms of car launches, if you count the Red Bull letters. So join us on Thursday for everything you need to know about the much-anticipated Ferrari F175. Thanks for listening to the Aramco 2022 F1 Car Reveal Series.